Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. From the scenic city in Chattanooga, Tennessee, welcome to the show. My distinguished guest today is Dr. Melissa Hughes. She is a neuroscience expert, and she spent the better part of her career understanding how the brain works and and how to make it work better as we teach and learn, create, and communicate in today's hectic workplace. So she's going to share practical applications of neuroscience that is going to enhance cognition and help us be more creative and help us to have a more productive and engaged workforce, all of which, of course, is going to contribute to the kind of company culture that we want for success. Melissa is the author of Happy Hour with Einstein. She's a high-energy keynote speaker and thought leader. So let's dive into this stimulating conversation right now. So I'm here with... Melissa Hughes, who I, I'm beginning to follow on LinkedIn. I love everything about her and what she does and what she puts out. And so officially, here we are. Melissa, welcome to the Love and Action Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm psyched <laughs> to be here. So tell me what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days. Well, I have to admit, I, I grew up in Ohio, and we have lots of gray days and cold mornings and cold evenings in Ohio, and I now live in Southwest Florida, so it doesn't take a whole lot to wake up and smile in Southwest Florida. About 360 out of 365 days of the year, the sun is shining, and it's just gorgeous. But I'm a very early riser, and I love to take my coffee outside, and one of my favorite parts of the day is watching night turn into day, that like slow, gradual, the sky changes, and we have beautiful sunrises. Morning skies are just gorgeous here. But I think probably if I'm getting a little bit more um, about my work and what makes me smile about my work is that I believe that everybody wants that three pounds squishy mash between their ears to work better. And <laughs> it makes me smile to know that I actually can help them do that. So, Well, let's talk a little bit about that. You're a, a true warrior for the humans first movement that you and I are following or have been become part of. Absolutely. You know, like you said, you come from a different angle, Melissa. So describe that, your work, and how did you land up becoming a, a neuroscience geek, basically? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I started my career in a fourth grade classroom. And um, at the end of my first year, I sat down with my mentor and we kind of did this post-mortem on what worked well and what didn't work well and what do you want to be better at next year. And I realized it was kind of this epiphanous moment. I realized that, you know, I'd been taught all these strategies and methods and theories of learning and education, but no one actually taught me how the brain learns. And that literally is my job description as a teacher, is to teach people how to learn. And I didn't know how that worked in the brain. And, you know, then it would have been really beneficial for me to know that when kids are all stressed out because of a high stakes test or because of a bully in the classroom or because mom and dad are fighting at home, their brain is generating cortisol. And that cortisol actually impedes their ability to learn. 
And that would have been really helpful, things like that. And so fast forward to where I am today, what I've learned over those years, I've long since left the classroom, but you know, learning is not confined to the classroom and everyone wants to know how to make their brain work better. And the more conversations that I had, I really, when I left the classroom, I started doing work um, from a professional development standpoint in education. But then I had all of these conversations with organizational leaders who like, well, yeah, my people's brains to work better too. I want my people to be better learners and collaborators and innovators and all things being equal, we all have pretty much the same access to that wealth of information that's spiraling out there in cyberspace. So we, what differentiates us or what differentiates companies from others is the ability to learn and the ability hmm. to learn together and to make your brain work as well as it can work. I'm already geeking out just because I, I've never had a conversation, so I'm excited about this one because uh, we're going to talk about things like leadership, employee engagement, and uh, team dynamics and things of that nature, but I've never explored it from this angle. So I'm excited about it. Let's dive into some of the topics that we agreed to talk about, and one is company culture, right? So a Google search on improving company culture will generate several hundred million results. But beyond those organizational initiatives, what are the key elements from your standpoint that you could, you know, if you wanted to design a healthy organizational culture, what does that look like? You know, it's so true. There are so many organizational initiatives out there, you know, everything from Frisbee Fridays to snacks in the break room to actual cash rewards for people to like dig in and get excited about a project. But research shows that the biggest reward that people cite for that place that they go to every day and they absolutely love it is that they're valued for their contributions, that they're appreciated, they're respected. And, you know, everybody wants to know that what we do really matters. We, we all want to matter to someone, right? We're wired to connect with other people. And so working on an island, that just isn't how it happens upstairs. So I think probably the biggest element to all of that from a neuroscience perspective is this concept called psychological safety. Mm. And psychological safety is just feeling safe enough to take risks and be authentic and vulnerable and, and not fear those negative consequences of self-image or status among our peers or from our superiors. In psychologically safe teams, members feel accepted and respected, but it's also that concept is also the most studied enabling condition in team dynamics. So when you connect that back to that construct that we are wired to connect with other people in a psychologically safe environment, our teams will perform better too. And when we are successful and productive and you know, making good positive change in our organizations, we feel good. And along with that, I think is trust because people have to feel like they trust other people up and down the ladder. And there is a lot of emerging research now about um, organizational mindset. And as the teacher in me, I've known about mindset for a long time. We've got growth mindset, we've got fixed mindset. And, you know, those who have a growth mindset are always curious and they're always searching for more. And now we know that organizations have a mindset too, which I found this completely fascinating. Um, but there are 
uh, organizations who are known for having a genius mindset. And the genius mindset really emphasizes being the best and success at all costs. And we're finding that those organizations, while they are not malintended, um, but they cultivate a culture of competition and mistrust, mm. where developmental organizations focus on collaboration and learning from one another. And a big part of learning is learning from our mistakes. But if we don't feel free to share the mistakes that we've learned, first of all, there is no trust. And second of all, no one else learns from those mistakes. So all of that kind of makes sense when you look at engagement stats. One of the biggest people that recent one of the biggest reasons that people cite um, being disengaged and not loving where they work is that they're not given opportunities to grow. We right. can grow if we can, you know, acknowledge what didn't work. Yeah. Okay. You said a lot and I love it because now we can start unpacking okay. Okay. a lot to unpack here. Well, you said something that uh, I want to revisit. Okay. We are wired to connect with others. Okay, great. So I'm a leader what if I don't have the capacity to bring people together so that the connectivity is high and, and innovation is being unleashed because people are trusting each other? So what's the starting point? Do we start with the leaders that set the conditions necessary for people to connect to each other? Or, I mean, what, what's the starting point here? I'm trying to get to, okay, if I'm a leader or if I'm a you know, an executive trying to set the stage for a healthy culture, where do I go? <laughs> well, I think you start with basic human needs. So, I don't know, back in 1970, I think it was, or 1960, uh, Abraham Maslow discovered the hierarchy of human needs. And, you know, you go from uh, physiological safety, you know, just your basic needs are met. You have air to breathe, you have water to drink, you have food to eat, you have shelter just those physical needs. And all the way up at the top is self-actualization. And that is when we can actually reach our potential. Yeah. In the middle, there are three other levels that are really, really important. And um, those levels of basic needs actually correspond to employee engagement, how we feel about where we work, not just employee engagement, just engagement, just how we feel about our environment. So belonging is in the center of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if we feel a strong sense of belonging, if we feel like the people around us are trustworthy, if, if we feel like we're, we're part of a tribe, then the brain generates certain neurotransmitters that actually facilitate activity in the prefrontal cortex. Hmm. If we don't feel like we belong, if we feel like we can't trust people around us or we just don't fit in, then the brain activates the fear threat center. And, and it's what's enabled us to evolve and survive as a species, you know, for billions of years. So we can generate the good chemicals that activate the thinking part of our brain, or we can generate the stress chemicals that activate the survival part of our brain. And understanding that and how important that is. Because I talk to leaders, you know, I hear from leaders a lot that say, it's not really my job to make my people happy. And I say, oh, okay, but if you want your people to be productive and creative and innovative and collaborative, then it is your job to make them feel connected and happy and, you know, satisfied with what they're doing. 
But I think from a neurological perspective, you really have to understand how important that sense of belonging is because that's the foundation for culture and culture is the foundation for engagement. Okay. So good. Cause I was going to ask you about the, and everyone seems to be looking for the secret sauce to a more engaged workforce. You may have answered the question, but uh, what would you say the secret is? Well, like, like I said earlier, you know, people, everybody really wants to contribute. I don't believe anybody gets up in the morning and says, I'm going to go to work and do like as little as possible. And I don't want to be challenged. <laughs> I, mean, I just don't believe the brain just isn't designed to work like that. We want to be challenged and we, we have this innate sense of curiosity. Now, sometimes we stifle it, but, but typically that's what the brain really wants to do. But from a neurological perspective, like I said, engagement has everything to do with neurotransmitters. And we all know about the stress hormone cortisol. We know what it does. We know it gives us wrinkles and we know it gives us gray hair and it contributes to cardiovascular disease and all of these horrible things. But um, what a lot of people don't know is that an overproduction of cortisol actually puts the prefrontal cortex on pause. So the prefrontal cortex is the part right behind our forehead. And that's the part that's responsible for impulse control, rational decision-making, organization and planning, you know, all of those, the problem solving skills, that's where we want to hang out. That's, that's the part of our brain that we want to hang out. And so if that part of the brain is put on pause, then you're not engaging in anything. You're just in pure survival mode. Um, so when the employee's fear threat center is engaged, nothing good is happening. So the secret sauce, I would say, is how do we, in this organization, instead of saying, how do we engage employees? How do we improve employee engagement? From a neurological perspective, the question is, how do we decrease cortisol and uh-huh. increase oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine? And there are really easy ways to increase dopamine, serotonin, and oxytocin. And the thing about neurotransmitters is they kind of sit on the opposite ends of the neurological seesaw. So when cortisol is really flowing and the brain is pumping out all this cortisol, oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin sit on the, this end of the neurological seesaw. But when those good chemicals are flowing, it shuts the tap off to the cortisol. We always have some cortisol flowing because it's what keeps us alive. It's what keeps us from walking out in the middle of traffic, right? But when our good chemicals are high, our cortisol is low. So instead of saying, how do we decrease the amount of cortisol or decrease the amount of stress in our organization? Better question is, how do we increase those good neurotransmitters that actually make people connected, that make people you know, problem solvers and creative and, you know, all of that good stuff. It's interesting. I've read the research by Paul Zak, who does... Uh, yeah, trust, yes. Yeah. And you and him are, it's like you're two peas in the pod right now. You're talking the exact same language about oxytocin. Now, dopamine, though, I've read some, some things about dopamine where it can get a little out of control and it becomes, um, you know, addictive. Sure. And overproduction of dopamine does lead to addiction, but there's new research that's super exciting. It says dopamine is not 
it can lead us to, it is the, it's called the seeking drug because it's like, I, I remember this feeling or I remember this thing and that felt really good. And, oh, I want to do that again. And so if that thing is something detrimental, sex or drugs or chocolate or shopping or whatever it is, whatever your vice is, then yes, what um, dopamine is actually released in anticipation. So dopamine is released when we think about getting that thing. And that is also what prompts us to act upon that thought. But if that thing is something good, like I want to run that 5K, and how good is that going to feel when I finish that 5K? And every time you think about how good that's going to feel, then your brain releases dopamine. And that actually is kind of a catalyst to get you closer to that goal. So dopamine can be very motivating, mm-hmm. but an overproduction of dopamine for for something negative is addiction An underproduction of dopamine. You just are a bump on a log. You have no initiative, no motivation at all. There's lots of studies looking at how we can intentionally increase our dopamine level uh, to motivate ourselves to reach that goal. Okay. I'm totally geeking out on this and I'm <laughs> loving it. And I hope our listeners are too. Some of them may have tuned out. I hope not, but I want to just touch on, oxytocin for a bit because you and Paul are really stressing oxytocin. Tell me about the effects of oxytocin. What does that do to us? So uh, we get oxytocin from, we call oxytocin the love drug or the coddle drug because we get it when we have skin to skin contact with another human being. Um, So cuddling or sex, but the biggest surge of oxytocin comes when a mother breastfeeds her child. And that is because there are neural pathways that are dedicated to connecting with another human being. That's why I say we're wired to connect. And that breastfeeding experience is that child's first meaningful skin-to-skin interaction with another person. So you look at the kids who, um, babies, infants who have failure to thrive. The failure to thrive is typically rooted in they didn't connect with another human being. They weren't held. They weren't, you know, they, they were bottle fed. They weren't breastfed, you know, all of those things. But oxytocin is so important because we look at people with high levels of depression, um, suicidal tendencies, people. We know that loneliness is a chronic epidemic right now. All those folks who experience those symptoms have very low levels of oxytocin. Um, so oxytocin is really, and you can get oxytocin like super easy, like give someone a hug. Hugging generates oxytocin. Or even if somebody touches you, a platonic touch can generate oxytocin, a platonic touch that says, good job, a pat on the back, or you know, shaking someone's hand in in a meaningful way, those things cannot absolutely generate oxytocin. And again, it's on, you know, it's one of those drugs that activates the prefrontal cortex and keeps us in that thinking space. So you're saying then uh, oxytocin, we need to release more oxytocin and serotonin because when we do, it literally increases our ability to trust other people. Absolutely. So all Okay, so from a, a neurological perspective, then what we're trying to get to is, is the trust factor that leads to people belonging and feeling psychologically safe so that they increase their output performance, you know, creativity, et cetera. So if all roads lead to trust and trust requires the brain to release these good chemicals, 
then we're back to what's the starting point. So I want to revisit that for a second, okay? And this maybe is more practical and less neuroscience in nature. So what do we need to do in trying to design these work cultures where we are getting the maximum amount of people belonging and connecting and increasing their their ability to relate. So, because we're we're now in a, I mean, this is the gig economy, and uh, more workforces are being dispersed in the remote. There's no face to face contact anymore. You know, and even if we do work in the same building, we're all slacking each other. We're emailing. We're texting. Right. So if you go back to kind of what is at the foundation of trust or even what is at the foundation for a healthy culture or an engaged workforce, it is that trust. And it is that being the feeling that what I do matters, the feeling that I am valued for the contributions that I bring, right? Everybody brings certain strengths to the table. I'm recognized and valued and appreciated for what I bring. And That can be as simple as a thank you card, a handwritten note. You know, they've done studies now. And here's the other really cool thing about these positive neurochemicals and the brain. And I'll take the example of a handwritten note. So you sit down and you jot, you're a leader and you sit down and, you know, somebody on your team works really hard. It's the quiet guy who doesn't make a lot of noise, but keeps his head down and really makes a lot of valuable contributions to the team. And you jot a note down that just says, hey, I'm really glad you're on my team. Just something that simple. And yet leave it on that person's desk. So the brain will automatically, when that person sees that thank you note, will automatically generate that dopamine is the I did it. Like, wow, that's cool. I did it. That felt good. And serotonin is a sense of well-being and oxytocin as well. I really fit in the space. They need me on this team. And that person's going to maybe put the note on the on his cork board or maybe he's tucking it in a drawer. But here's the cool thing is every time that person looks at that handwritten note, the brain will generate another dose of those good chemicals because the brain doesn't really differentiate between imagining something as it happened and remembering something that happened. And so when you can create those experiences for people to generate those good chemicals and also as something as simple as a thank you note that allows them to re-experience those, then you get like, that's so easy and it costs nothing. It costs yeah. a few minutes. It costs a few minutes of the day. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. It's the least expensive form of engagement when you praise and acknowledge people. I want to touch on something. We, we talked so much about how to... <laughs> how to get your employees to connect, how to get your employees to, quote, be happy. And some of that responsibility has to go to the employee to come into work and, you know, engaged in their, on their own. So I want to back up a little bit and talk about self-leadership. And maybe from a neuroscience perspective is, yes, leaders are responsible for setting the right conditions for things like psychological safety, to happen so people are more safe to engage, et cetera. But let's, let's talk about what does a leader have to do to release those good chemicals before they go out and try to set the conditions for people to feel good about themselves and their work? So I wrote Happy Hour with Einstein. I also wrote Full Color 28-Day Companion Gratitude Journal. And there's all kinds of 
research in the area of gratitude. And I'm like, we could talk for three hours on gratitude and I know we don't have that time, but one of the premises of starting your day in a great and a gratitude filled space. And it can take two minutes, you know, wake up in the morning and what are you grateful for today? And what we know about the brain is that we can get stuck in a vicious cycle or we can get stuck in a virtuous cycle. What happens is when we focus on the negative things around us, if you wake up in the morning, oh, got that meeting and that guy and the, and then now what happens is, you know, if you think I'm, this is going to be the worst day ever. Confirmation bias tells us that we look for, we search for evidence to confirm that which we believe to be true. So if we believe we are going to have a crappy day, then we're going to find all the reasons why it's a crappy day. It's raining. I can't find a parking spot. You know, I spilled coffee. Look at all the reasons why this day is going to be terrible. What gratitude does is it forces you to look beyond all those negatives and say, intentionally say, I'm going to put my brain in a positive space. I'm going to say, I'm going to have the best day ever. And this is why, because I get to have lunch with whoever today, or or I get to have this meeting, you know, and talk, brainstorm some great ideas for the next whatever project we're working on. And so when you put your brain in that positive space, confirmation bias says we will search out evidence to confirm that which we believe to be true. And so you're going to look for evidence to, wow, it's raining. Oh my gosh, I don't have to water my plants today. (laughs) This guy did it for me. Or you know, whatever you, you reframe all of those things that you initially think are negative and you look for reasons to make them positive. And what happens is when we are stuck in either of those loops, when we're stuck in the negative loop, the brain just doesn't naturally slip out of the negative loop. The brain will continue to find negative, you know, to reinforce that negative cycle until you intentionally break that cycle with something positive. And so, you know, for those leaders that say, well, look, I want to come in. I want to set the stage for people to be in a really positive place. Like in our workspace, the best way to do that is to give them reasons to be positive. Let them see you being positive. And that doesn't mean like walking through the office with rose colored glasses on. I mean, we have to find the pitfalls and we have to look at the obstacles and we have to, you know, not everything is going to work. And some things, mistakes are costly. So I'm not suggesting that we never look at the mistakes, but I'm suggesting that we spend as much time looking at the things that are working as we do the things that are not working. And I think what happens in many organizations today is that, you know, an organization that is afloat, doing well, you know, 90% of the stuff they do really works, but 10% needs to be better or doesn't work at all. And what happens is we tend to really focus on that 10%, we spend 90% of our energy, emotional and otherwise, on that 10%, and we forget about the 90%. And what about all of those people that are working really hard to make that 90% happen? If we never recognize them for the good stuff, then they start to focus on all the negatives. And then pretty soon everybody's just in a vicious cycle. And so... I think that's a good starting place. Just and, and I think just understanding how it all works up here and emotional contagion, I think it's so valuable. I think the leaders that understand what happens, um, I'll give you another example. Somebody comes into the conference, the boss comes into the conference room, he just had a terrible 
conversation with his boss. His boss is all over him about numbers or revenue or, you know, you're not making your forecast. And he's stressed and he's worried. And, you know, he's irritated because he just got a mouthful from his boss and he comes into the conference room with his team and he doesn't have to say a thing. Emotional contagion makes all that cortisol, all that stress, all that frustration and all that negativity. It just puts it all out there to the rest of the group. It just happens. We don't know it happens, but it happens. I love that you brought up gratitude. And uh, I think that we're not stressing the importance of it enough in uh, in the workplace and especially from a leadership standpoint. I want to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Kevin Monroe, who started the Gratitude Challenge. And you can find that on LinkedIn if you just find Kevin Monroe there. And he's posting a lot about the Gratitude Challenge. So I want to touch a little bit on the physical and emotional benefits of gratitude and just kind of expand on that because this is really important for us to understand what gratitude does in the brain. Can you expand a little bit on that? So gratitude is actually a natural antidepressant. It can elevate our mood. It can lower um, our blood pressure. It can lower our heart rate. It gives us a greater sense of belonging. It does all of that without the office visit, without the copay, and without all of the nasty side effects. Because what happens is when we practice gratitude, we produce dopamine and serotonin. And these transmitters actually travel to a place in the brain, and this is so great, it's called the bliss center of the brain. And we have that, and that is so cool, right? Nice. And that bliss center of the brain is the same center of the brain where chemical antidepressants go. So the same part of the brain is activated. But it even gets better than that. So the more you stimulate these neural pathways that activate the the bliss center, um, the stronger and the more automatic they become. And this construct is neurons that fire together, wire together. And if you think of it like if you are forging a path through the woods and the first time you go, you don't know exactly where you're going. You're on a hike and you don't know exactly how to get to the destination. But the more times you travel that path, the more automatic it becomes, the more comfortable it becomes. That's the same concept of neurons firing together. The more times a certain neural pathway is activated, the less effort it actually takes to stimulate that same pathway next time. So if you're creating all of these neural pathways to the bliss center and you do it over and over and over again, Pretty soon, that is a really familiar path for your brain to take. And that that was really the impetus of the gratitude journal. You know, 28 days of practicing gratitude, five minutes in the morning, five minutes at night. And now you've actually created neural pathways in the brain, which I don't know if anybody gets as geeked out about that as I do, but I think that is very cool. (laughs) I want to transition and get into a discussion about fear and love from a leadership in the work sense. And I can tell you that looking back at some of my worst fear related instances at work, I can tell you right now, but that cortisol was just completely hijacked my brain and uh, fight and fly took over. And I was like, the fear was off the charts. It caused all kinds of health issues, stress, my back went out, things of that nature. So I can totally get what you're saying here. So from a neuroscience standpoint, My colleague, Renee Smith, over at uh, A Human Workplace and I, we started to ask these questions to understand why fear is still so prevalent at work and how love 
in a business sense, as in a loving action, which is why we do this podcast, is to bring out the principles that that will release those good chemicals like serotonin and oxytocin, right? So I guess the question I want to, first question I want to ask you is why is fear still so prevalent in the workplace? Why do people still lead with the iron fist instead of principles of love and care? You know, I don't know, because we certainly have a a wealth of research that proves it just doesn't give you the same ROI. I mean, we have all kinds of, you know, there are all kinds of organizations that have solid statistics, like real revenue, real numbers that show that it just doesn't work as well. But again, I don't believe people get up with the intention of making the people around them miserable. I, I do believe that we pay too little attention to the avoidable stressors and what they do to us physically, mentally, and emotionally. Maybe people are unaware of how stress manifests itself you know, in the human body and in the human brain. But I actually believe, and I have found that when people understand the toll that that takes on not just mood and happiness, because you can say, okay, you're not responsible for people's happiness. But if you understand the toll that it takes on our ability to problem solve and be creative and how that those stressors impact the bottom line, then I think that it would be more of a focus. And so when I talk to folks who say it's not my job to make my people happy, then I say, okay, well, let's talk about what would impact your bottom line. And if that's what we want to talk about is your bottom line, and, you know, when you can connect those dots, then I think people are, are much more open about it. And, and I also think we have gotten to this place where we pedal faster and harder and we try to do more with less. And if you're familiar at all with Tony Schwartz, he's the... Um, founder of the Energy Project, and he has done a lot of work on, uh, the brain simply is not designed to work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., not stop, don't walk away from your desk, don't go to lunch, don't engage with other people. That isn't how we're designed to work. And, you know, so I think that when people realize that micromanaging people when they step away from their desk and they have a quick exchange with somebody that little five minute break and exchange with another people might be what increases productivity when they come back to their desk. So I think it's a lack of understanding because I don't believe that people are malintended in, in the iron fist. Right. And so to me, I always go back to mindset. People don't understand because they don't have the mindset for it. So we have to bring them into the belief, which then will, will shift the mindset and the thinking around, okay, wait, these things actually do work from a business perspective. Because that's to me, that's what it comes down to is uh, those at the highest levels of an organization, they want to see the ROI of it and they don't understand enough about it. That's why people like you and me, we got to just keep banging on the drum and raise awareness about this. Okay. I want to ask the questions that we ask our study participants. So are you ready? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. Tell me about a time when you felt afraid at work. What happened? What did you do? And what did others do? Well, this one's really personal to me. Actually, I just wrote an article a few weeks ago entitled, My Boss Was Killing Me One Brain Cell at a Time. (laughs) And I was that brand evangelist in my company. I loved my job. And I was the girl who, if somebody said, tell me what you do, I talked for 20 minutes about how great my company was. And I did that for close to a decade. And then I got a new boss and everything changed. 
And now remember, like I was the overachiever. And so I just thought I'm going to pedal harder and faster and I'm going to get, he's going to understand, he's going to see the value that I had. And it didn't happen. But I think where I really got afraid is, you know, he kind of, he literally looked across the table at me and said, your job is to make me look good and take a bullet for me when I don't. And I think that was the moment that I was, that it was fear. It wasn't just stress, but it was fear. And the reason that it was fear was because I had a team under me. And if I'm dealing with this, if my fear threat center is engaged and I'm dealing with this, this isn't something I can fix. I mean, I can't fix this person. And so my fear was I can no longer be productive and effective with my team because now I'm stuck in survival mode. I'm just trying to figure out how to keep myself safe. When we're only worried about keeping ourselves safe, we're not doing anything for anyone else. And so I think that was the fear part for me because I had to have this like kind of come to Jesus meeting like, okay, what are you doing with this? This is what it is. Are you leaving or are you going to try to gut it out? And I knew I couldn't gut it out. And so I ultimately left and I landed in a much better place. But that fear is overwhelming. And I mean, I I was in a place where my hair was literally falling out. I was losing my hair. (laughs) So, you know, I think... The sad part of that is I talk to people all the time. Everybody's had a bad boss experience, so I'm not special in that regard. But, you know, I talk to people all the time and I did try to go through the chain of command and I tried to problem solve. I read every book about how to get along with your boss, (laughs) like everything. And, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes you have to take yourself out of fear. And that means taking yourself out of the organization and, Leaders who understand that know that they're going to lose really good people. So mm-hmm. that's my fear story. I'm going to flip the coin now. Tell me about a time when you felt loved at work. What happened? What did you do? And what did others do? Well, in contrast to my horrible boss, the boss before was an amazing boss. Um, and he was also, he served as a mentor to me. Like, I really felt fortunate that I got opportunities to learn in areas that I would have really expanded my opportunity for learning. He brought me to the table to learn things that were brand new for me. And he gave me a lot of autonomy. And as his trust of me grew, then my determination to never disappoint him grew. And so it was that sense of reciprocity that just was so rewarding and so satisfying. And I think the biggest takeaway from that was I knew what that felt like for me. And so then I was able to pass that along to my own team. That same kind of sense of the more I trusted people, the more autonomy I gave them, the more they wanted to give me. They didn't want to disappoint me. And I think when you experience that, that's the coolest thing ever. Like Mm. that's when people really have ownership of their work and take pride in the successes and That is that connectedness that people feel. I just think that's cool. Yeah, yeah. And just uh, expanding just a little bit on the impact. Was there any other positive impact that that loving experience it did, not just for your own personal life, but maybe for productivity as a team or a company or any other business ways that 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 helped out? Yeah, so at the time, I was director of marketing communications. So we did everything from email marketing to catalog to whatever. And uh, anybody in the marketing world knows that catalog time is 
hell time, right? So um, it always ended up that when we were in the catalog space, it was just stressful. It was hard. It was long hours. We had deadlines. If you missed the printer date, you were screwed. And so there was all of that going on. And what I found was the, the more that I trusted people, the more that they wanted to deliver for me. And those times where people really need to push their sleeves up and dig in, people didn't do it as an obligation. They did it because they wanted to. They did it because they owned that problem and they knew they would own that success at the end of the day. So when you talk about increased productivity and buy-in and people owning the work, I mean, that's what happens when they feel trusted. And I experienced that firsthand. And I think that is probably one of the most people say, how do you increase productivity? And Well, you don't start with how you do the work. You start with how you treat your people. Mm. And that's how productivity increases. So I'm going to come full circle because we're talking with a neuroscience expert. Then love helps to release those feel-good chemicals in the brain, which then gets us to where we want to go, which is the trust that every organization, every person wants to feel that trust. How do we get there? Is that the question? No, that was just my bringing everything full circle back to how we started, which was really it starts in the brain. Well, and Mike Vacanti will love this, but it, it starts by recognizing that we're humans first. We're not employees first. You know, every employee is somebody's sister or brother or mother or father or whatever. And if we treat people at work the way we treat people we love, we're going to get better work out of them. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's inappropriate love at the office, but I'm just saying if we treat them with that same care, that same level of care and compassion that we treat the people that we love, then we are going to get better work. We're going to have better work environment. We're going to have higher productivity. We're going to have better products because everyone's invested emotionally in what they do. Mm. Well stated. I love that. I'm going to bring it home with two last questions for you, Melissa. Personally, what is really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? Um, I really like to just people to know that you really can't do your best work if your brain is hijacked by negative thoughts and emotions. Now, we all have that inner critic and that inner critic can be very loud and, and take over sometimes. But when our brain is hijacked by negative thoughts and emotions, whether they come from in here or they are spurred from outside, um, they shut down the part of the brain that we really want to live in. We want to be challenged. We want to be curious. We, we, we want to experience that love for learning something new. And when we learn how to trigger those positive emotions, then we can reach our highest potential and find purpose and success and Ultimately, all of that leads to satisfaction because don't we all just want to be, you know, have happiness and personal satisfaction and who we are, why we're here and what we do. Mm. We end by giving you the mic for a final statement. So you ended the way you want to. Is there anything you'd like to, our listeners to absolutely walk away with one thing, perhaps, that they can uh, take away from this conversation? Well, when people ask me what I do, I say I understand how the brain works. And and I try to help people understand how to make it work better. And if we can understand, truly understand how the brain works, and you don't have to be a neuroscientist to understand how the brain works, but if we can understand how the brain works, then we can learn how to make it work better. And that is the purpose of my work. That was the purpose of my book. And that is 
That is the goal. Every time I deliver a keynote or have a conversation like this, we can control the way our brain works if we understand how it works. So knowledge is power. Not to get geeky with a schoolhouse rocks. I think that was a schoolhouse rocks <laughs> quote. <laughs> Great stuff. So if people want to connect with you, pick up a copy of your book, how do they do that? You can go to melissahughes.rocks and you can learn about me. Uh, you can buy a book there. You can go to Am- the books are available on Amazon or you can also contact me from my website, melissahughes.rocks. There you go. I appreciate us hanging out. Finally, after yes. so many uh, exchanges on LinkedIn, and it's been truly a pleasure and an honor. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Here's my 60 second takeaway. You know, we talk a lot about the heart and our emotions and how to lead from those places. And we forget that our brains are in charge of how we feel. And so as leaders, we need to learn the habits that result in positive cultures of belonging and psychological safety and gratitude. So from a neuroscience perspective, the secret sauce of employee engagement is this. Figure out how to decrease cortisol in the brain, in your brain, in the brains of your employees, which comes from fear, and learn how to increase the good chemicals of oxytocin, serotonin, and dopamine, which, when released in the brain, is going to lead to trust and belonging. Thanks for joining us, and as always, please don't forget to subscribe to Love in Action via Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, and I would love it if you could leave me a review. Next week, I sit down with Carol Granis, Chief Esteem Officer for Self-Esteem Brands, and we're going to tackle this leadership topic of vulnerability, which is often misinterpreted as soft or weak. You're going to find out it's exactly the opposite. See you next time, and don't forget, love in action is what will truly set your leadership apart. Try it. Hey, Love in Action Nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's Marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.